We are in the middle of a series of sermons on signs in John's Gospel. Signs is John's word for miracles. At the beginning of each of these sermons, I've been starting by stating our basic working assumptions, and there are three. The first assumption is that John acknowledges that actually Jesus did a vast number of signs, but he himself picks out seven for us to look at in detail. Therefore, he obviously has a particular desire to be teaching us something special from each of these seven signs. That's our first assumption. Secondly, uh, John assumes that we are believers. Uh, that we are Christians from Gentile or Jewish background. And thirdly, he therefore writes his gospel for people who already know the Jesus story and have read at least one of the other accounts of the life of Jesus, the, either the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke. It's, it's plain that he assumes that as uh, background knowledge. Um, something further for us to, to, to think about and to know for today is that sometimes a sign, a miracle in John's Gospel, sometimes it provokes a discussion. Not always, uh, but regularly there is a discussion or a discourse following the sign. And as part of this series, we're looking at those conversations as well as the signs that stimulated them, where and when they occur. So today, we're going to look at a conversation. We're going to look at a discourse that arose as a direct result of the fourth sign. The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000, a miracle that actually we looked at three weeks ago. But after that sign, it actually takes the crowd a little while to catch up with Jesus, and I guess it's the same for us. So we'll look at the conversation this morning that took place as a direct result of the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. And that conversation you can find in your pew Bible. You might like to follow along. We're in John chapter 6. We're on page 865. John chapter 6. And we're going to begin at verse 25. When they... Uh, that is to say, the crowd, when they found him, uh, that is to say, Jesus, when, when the crowd found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They asked, then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Well, uh, we hear once again that the crowd actually has witnessed many signs. 
Indeed, uh, we, we already know that the crowd came together in the first place, hunting down Jesus in the wilderness beyond the Sea of Galilee, because he was doing a vast number of extraordinary healing miracles. Everyone who came to him was healed. Every sickness, disease, disability, all healed. Now, their motivation for following Jesus has intensified because out there in the wilderness, they encountered something brand new. They experienced something different. They experienced free food. And the combination of such things. I mean, boy, what a combo. Healed of every sickness, plus free food, that guarantees your survival. Better not let this guy out of your sight. Clearly, Jesus is not someone you should let go of. Although they have correctly understood that they need Jesus, they don't yet understand the nature of that need. Jesus himself, only a few chapters earlier, told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was teaching his disciples then, and now he's teaching the crowd, that life is actually not about survival, but actually about service, serving God. Are we needy creatures? You bet we are. But actually, our greatest need, our deepest, truest need, is actually the need to serve God. We need to serve God. And having established that our deepest need is actually to serve God, Jesus then points to himself as the solution of how to serve God. How do you serve God? You serve God by believing in the one who was sent. That, that's, that's, that's the good way God God requires, desires. That's what it means to serve God, to to believe in the one he sent. Jesus is pointing to himself. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the solution of how you serve God. Jesus is saying that our deepest, truest need is met, our need to serve God, when we trust Jesus, when we put our faith in him as our saviour, and when we obey him as our Lord. This is, of course, an outrageous claim. So they asked him, verse 30, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, once again, we see for ourselves that signs and miracles are by no means a sure thing as a vehicle of communication. I mean, signs are astonishingly articulate. It's miraculous how much miracles tell us, but only when they're interpreted correctly. Miracles are easy to misunderstand and difficult to understand. They ask What sign will you give that we may believe? When in fact, they've already witnessed an uncountable multitude of unprecedented signs. That's why they're there. It's ironic. It's hysterical. It's bizarre. They've seen any number of signs. But they have not understood. 
what they are suggesting, what they're showing, is that they're expecting something on a larger scale. When their survival as a nation was threatened by starvation in the desert, on their way out of Egypt, God sent them manna to eat. Their statement, therefore, is for a request. Lord, we want an even bigger demonstration of your ability to guarantee our survival. Jesus said to them, verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. As I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. At this, uh, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. In, in other words, the manna was uh, no guarantee of survival. In actual fact, 100% of manna eaters later went on to die. 100%. It was no guarantee of survival. Jesus continues, verse 50, But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up 
at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Well, everyone who heard Jesus' teaching that day in the synagogue in Capernaum Capernaum, found the teaching frustratingly difficult to understand. The crowd doesn't understand. The Jews are grumbling and arguing, and the disciples have been scandalized. By the way, in John's Gospel, I mean, after all, everybody present is Jewish, in, in, in John's Gospel, when he used the phrase, the Jews, that's shorthand for the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. In context, the synagogue leaders. The, the same factions that the other Gospels label as Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, teachers of the law, scribes, etc., etc. That the Jews are grumbling should bring to mind, once again, the wilderness wanderings of the Exodus wherein the people were constantly grumbling, which means that they were complaining about God behind his back. So the crowd hasn't understood, the Jews are grumbling, and the disciples have been scandalized, by which I mean that Christ's teaching is a stumbling block to them. They don't accept it because they can't accept it. And as we'll see in verse 66, from this time many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Given this near universal, essentially universal rejection of Jesus' teaching on that day, I have two questions. And my two questions are these. Firstly, what is Jesus up to? And my second question is, secondly, what is John up to, our author? What is he up to? And I ask these two questions because there are actually two audiences that we need to consider in order to understand what we find written here. If we're going to make sense of this passage. You see, the first audience are those who heard Jesus speaking in that synagogue on that day. How did they understand what Jesus was saying? The second audience are those who first read John's Gospel when it was hot off the press. He's writing for them. What had they understood? What was he communicating? What was the author communicating to his audience in that church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, some 30 years later? Well, let's look at the first question first. What is Jesus up to? If we listen to his words literally, that immediately brings to mind human sacrifice, cannibalism, and the drinking of blood. And uh, their point of reference would have been, naturally, the sacrificial system described in the Old Testament up and running in their day in the temple. That's their point of reference. But what they know is that the Old Testament utterly despises all three things. Human sacrifice, 
cannibalism and the drinking of blood, the Old Testament utterly despises those things. Jesus' audience on that day would not have thought in terms of Holy Communion or, or the Lord's Supper because it hadn't been invented yet. They're thinking in terms of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. That did involve animals being slaughtered, bulls, lambs, goats and doves, but never human beings. Perish the thought. And it did involve sometimes eating the meat of animals sacrificed. It's not all sacrifices, but some of them. But it never involved the drinking of blood. Uh, that was specifically forbidden. The drinking of blood, the law of Moses forbade that in any context because the life of the creature, it is stated, is in the blood. The blood must always be poured out, never consumed in any way. Given all of this, how could Jesus' teaching possibly have been understood by those who heard him on that day? I think that the only possible answer is this. They could not have understood him. It would have been impossible to find a meaningful interpretation. They did not understand him because they could not understand him. And that begs the question, why say something if you know your audience can't possibly understand you? Why say it at all? Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What then? What, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say this. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Well, Peter, not unusually, Peter is once again the spokesperson for the entire group. And to paraphrase his answer, he basically said, Lord, where else can we go? What else can we do? We know you are from God. Even when I don't understand you, I will trust you. And to paraphrase Jesus these words of mine today are from the Holy Spirit and therefore can only ever be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. After the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, then you will understand. Then you'll understand my sacrifice at the cross 
as the one true sacrifice, the fulfillment of all sacrifice, the one sacrifice that makes the sacrificial system redundant and obsolete. And the reason that you're not leaving now is not that you've chosen to believe in me, but rather the reason you're not leaving is that actually the Father has chosen you to believe in me. That's why you're not leaving. So uh, that's what Jesus is up to. What is John up to? What is our author doing in recording this conversation for a different audience? His audience, they're Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. They're familiar with the Lord's Supper because they do it every week. Um, We're not actually having the Lord's Supper here today. This is just a clumsy visual aid, but there you have it. Um, um, We we do it. uh, We do the Lord's Supper uh, at this service, um, first Sunday of the month, at our other two services every week. Uh, Most Christians in, in the early church, it was one of the things that they did every week. They're, they're familiar with the Lord's Supper, um, a sacred meal um, on the evening or maybe in the morning of the first day of the week. A, a sacred meal, which includes the sharing out of a loaf of bread and the sharing of a cup of wine. And they know the words of institution from Matthew's Gospel. Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These are the words Jesus himself spoke at the last, sorry, at the, yeah, at the last supper, um, the, the, the Passover feast, which he shared with his disciples on the night before he died. And in doing so, at the last supper, he instituted the Lord's Supper as a sacrament to be repeated, as, as a celebration, as a way of remembering his death until his coming again. Now, when John, in his gospel, when he gets to that bit in the story, the night before Jesus died, and the meal that they shared, there's a mention of all kinds of things. There's towels, there's bowls, there's washing of feet, but there's no mention of bread, and there's no mention of a cup. There's no mention of wine. Why not? Well, because he knows that his audience already knows this. That they know about that. His readers have already read one or more of the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So then, John's audience, they actually know about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. But what will spring to their mind when they read this passage is not the Old Testament sacrificial system, but what will spring to their mind is the Lord's Supper. And we're closer, aren't we? We're closer to that audience. We are Christians from Gentile background. We don't really understand or know about the temple sacrificial system because we've never seen it. We've never used it or felt like we had to depend on it. But the the Lord's Supper, we practice that regularly. What then is John doing? Well, What I'm about to say is speculative, but I think he's addressing probably a problem in the church in Ephesus. And my reason 
uh, that I find it easy to imagine that he's addressing a particular problem in his church is that the problem I think he's addressing is an exceedingly common problem that occurs in every church sooner or later. And that problem is, how do we actually understand what it is that we're doing at Holy Communion? After all, these things are confusing. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, preserve you unto everlasting life. The body of Christ given for you, keep you in eternal life. It is easy when we hear those words to form the opinion that by taking Holy Communion, you are saved. That you are forgiven by means of Holy Communion and that you're going to heaven because you're up to date with respect to Holy Communion. And actually, none of those ideas are true. They are all false. They are all misunderstandings of Holy Communion. In this passage, John may well be talking about Holy Communion, having the Lord's Supper in mind, but if that is the case... He's doing it in order to force people to reimagine, to understand again, to think again about what Holy Communion is all about. Because actually, or obviously, the passage is not about Holy Communion. No, rather, this passage and Holy Communion are both about trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, trusting him completely to save us at every turn and at every juncture, that we might live for him, that we might live because of him, that we might live through him, and that we might know that we are saved, we are forgiven, and we are going to heaven, not because we take Holy Communion, but rather because he has chosen us. And that we believe in Jesus because the Father has chosen us as a gift to his Son. That's why we believe in Jesus. That's why I believe in Jesus. I just do. It's evidence that God has chosen me. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that amazing? So, I believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Even when we don't understand him. Still know he's from God. That he is God. Well, survival and eating and drinking. Um, the desire to survive is hardwired into all of us such that when our survival is threatened, we feel f fear and desperation and we are driven to do perhaps anything to meet the challenge against our survival. I, I do not know what it is like to be hungry. I have no idea. N not in the way that they understood hunger. I mean, to live an entire life under the cloud of the possibility of death by starvation. That's what they lived with. I have no idea what it's like to be thirsty. Not, not, I mean, not like they did. Um, a drought could mean death by thirst within days. And you move around on foot. You, 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 you could be more than three days away from your next drink. You're going to die very painfully. And another thing that could easily happen is a neighboring power decides they want your town and besieges it. No one can go in or out. You're going to die of hunger. You can surrender, but otherwise you're going to die of hunger and thirst. Slowly. Hunger and thirst, separately or together, drive people insane. 
and they do unspeakable things in their desperation. If you have any doubts about that, read the book of Lamentations. However, we too, we all experience from time to time the terror of possible destruction by one means or another. Many of us know and have experienced the fear of death, and it is exceedingly uncomfortable. And we all know within ourselves the fight for survival. Even if our fight for survival in our current world is perhaps a little bit more subtle or a little bit more sophisticated than the day-to-day -day fight for essentials that they knew back then, we still know what it means to fight for our survival. Jesus says that survival is actually not the real issue. Whether we eat mana or not, we're all going to die. Our real need is to serve God. The one who serves God transcends the need to survive. And Jesus himself meets that need. How will he meet that need? Figuratively speaking, by way of human sacrifice, cannibalism, and the drinking of his blood. He says that he will offer himself up for us so that we can consume him, so that we might live. For Jesus, the desire to survive and the desire to serve God are utterly opposed. He can only serve God if he utterly ignores his desire to survive. For him, those two desires are utterly at odds. And in fulfillment, there is the cross. He will overcome his own desperate desire to survive in order to serve God, in order to save us. And to really live is to live depending upon Jesus, trusting Jesus at every juncture for everything. And to really live is to live in imitation of him, acknowledging the desire to survive and then ignoring it in order that we might move in the opposing spirit and serve God. Doing acts of loving self-sacrifice for the sake of others at cost to ourselves. And as we believe and as we do these things, Jesus guarantees not that we'll survive, but rather that we'll live and have life in all its fullness. The Lord be with you.